Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. My name is Doug McNeil and this is the podcast from the Met Office. Today we've got a climate special and we are really excited, uh, really privileged to talk to Professor Ralph Keeling over from the States. Good afternoon. Yeah, th- thanks. Thanks, Doug. And uh, joining me today is uh, Professor Richard Betts, MBE. Congratulations, Richard, on your recent MBE and your recent award. So, um, thanks. Um, you might remember Richard from uh, a previous podcast we did uh, on uh, J- James Lovelock uh, and the Gaia hypothesis. Um, so, um, Professor Keeling, Ralph, um, welcome to the UK. Sorry about the weather. Okay. As I, as I said earlier, you guys forecast, but don't control it. So it's not your fault. So this isn't your natural <laughs> environment. I know we're, we're recording in uh, mid-June and we're having, you know, it's not, not quite such a, a good summer. You're from California, aren't you? Is that right? Well, I didn't, I didn't come to England for the sunshine. So I, I, I got what I expected. Although today is <laughs> maybe a little, a little heavier than typical. So if you've got anything, if you've ever um, looked up uh, anything to do with climate science, then you'll recognize uh, the name of Keeling. In fact, we don't often get a climate scientist with, with a curve named after them. So I'm talking about the Keeling curve, which is the record of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. And, um, and I believe your father started recording this, this curve. Is, is that correct? And how did that come about? That's right. So uh, it's a bit of a long story. I'll That's try to, okay. I'll we've, try, we've got time. I'll we've got try time to be brief. So, so the, the, the record is, is measurements of carbon dioxide uh, from the Mauna Loa Observatory, which is a, an observatory near but not at the summit of Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Uh, that was initiated in 1958. Uh, at that time, uh, there really hadn't been careful measurements of carbon dioxide in, in remote locations such as that. Uh, other people, including my father, had measured CO2 in forests or in cities or in, in different settings. And his own work had shown that if you could go to a remote enough location, you almost got a constant value of CO2. And that was not appreciated before. And it was important because it meant that if you could go to a clean place and measure over time, you might be able to get the global average increase with just a simple measurement like that. And there was a lot of skepticism that you would learn anything globally significant from measurements at one location. But he was very excited to do that. He didn't do it alone. He did it in collaboration with the colleagues at Scripps. He did it with colleagues at the Weather Bureau, particularly a fellow named Harry Wexler. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a lot of impact on different areas of weather and climate at that, er- at that time. And he had uh, founded the Monolo Observatory. And so they were, they were also very excited to get this measurement going there. So what was the motivation for them for, for, for beginning these measurements? The climate question was already on the table. Right, okay. So uh, for a while in the early 20th century, in the middle 20th century, there was a lot of skepticism that uh, CO2 buildup could cause climate change. The First, there was the, the thought that the CO2 you emitted in the air wouldn't stay there because the ocean could, oceans would just soak it all up. And the other objection was that the CO2, even if it did build up, wouldn't affect climate because the absorption of infrared heat radiation by CO2 would be overwhelmed by water in the atmosphere, so it wouldn't have much impact. And and by the 1950s, both of those ideas had been shot down, one of them by Roger Avell, the mm-hmm. director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Uh, he, he shot down the idea that the oceans would take it all up. Um, but then the question was, was it really building up in the atmosphere? And there was no good 
good indication one way or the other about. Well, I guess there was a, there was a little bit of work by Guy Stewart Calendar. Calendar, that's yeah. right. It's a, so uh, so from he the had, UK. Yeah, he, had, he exactly. He was an engineer. I guess he did. You probably know more than me, but he did some kind of thermal engineering or something. And this was his. Uh, his hobby. His hobby, yeah, yeah. The grand so, tradition of the So you, 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 can, you can view him as the lone skeptic or one of the lone skeptics against the theory that CO2 did nothing. Okay, so there, here's yeah. a true skeptic at work. <laughs> okay, and he did compile measurements of CO2 from various uh, people around the world and had an indication of an increase. Um, but it was, it was very sketchy data for the reasons that they were, these were measurements made in places where there was a lot of variability. So you had to wonder whether it was just some kind of spurious indication. Maybe the measurements were being done closer to a smokestack in uh, 1950. Was, um, was Kew Gardens, I think. Uh, I think his, uh, one of his measurements was at Kew Gardens, which obviously close to London. Maybe, but I think mostly he was compiling other people's measurements. Oh, is that right? Okay. So going back even 100 years or more. Remember, yeah. CO2 was discovered long, long before this. It was discovered way back, almost before oxygen. Uh, uh, so you could, you could, you know, you could release CO2 by heating up carbonates. And so people knew how to prepare pure CO2 okay. um, and, and capture it and study its properties. And, and it was known to be physiologically interesting. And so people, particularly physiologists who were doing things like putting mice in bell jars and trying to figure out what happened to them uh, or what happened to the air, would need to know how much CO2 was in the air when they put it in. So they'd measure the CO2 outside as a control. And so there were big measurements being made in this kind of way over a long period. And and and, and Calendar had compiled these. Um, and I, I, my father was actually in touch with Calendar. So he was, oh, he, was okay. he was kind of... He, so directly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure he met, but he, he, he managed to get a copy of one of the, the Calendar's notebooks. And I remember years later, someone was hounding us to make sure that notebook got back. I think it did. I think it did. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. So we're going forward to the late to the late, to the late late 50s when, when yeah. this, uh, this record was started. And, and uh, you mentioned Mauna Loa. Yeah. Um, and, and so how, how did that lab get set up and what was the kind of equipment that was being used up there to... Uh, to monitor the CO2 record. Right. I mean, I don't know that much about the history of the creation of the station, but it was not, I mean, the CO2 measurements were among the first things that went in there. There were also, I think they had a Dobson unit for measuring ozone and a few other things like that. Okay. Um, and, they, and, and shortly thereafter, or nearly the same time, they were already doing measurements of the sun from, from Mauna Loa. There, many people may be familiar with the observatory on Mauna Kea, which mm -hmm. is an astronomical observatory with these big telescopes. Um, so you're high up in the atmosphere and you're, you've got less atmosphere to see. To yeah, see I was told that one reason to go to Mauna Loa is to get away from the potential for dust because Mauna Kea is a cinder cone, whereas Mauna Loa is a lava dome. They're right next to each other, but they're completely different geologically. Okay. And so I think Mauna Loa had much less potential for uh, contamination of aerosol from oh, okay. local dust because the lava is, is, is very hard rock. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't fragment and produce dust. Um, so anyway, so he, 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 his instrumentation was among the first in instrumentation to go in there. And it was an infrared CO2 analyzer. Um, this had not been employed, this technique had not been employed much for CO2 measurements. The, the technology went back, though, a few decades or, or so. I mean, among the other things, I think it was used in submarines and in mines to check air quality. Um, and okay, you could so it engineering it, sort of yeah you know, so and, and it was a, not scientific equipment per se but you're sort of repurposing something for scientific it had been built use. up for industrial purposes yeah, yeah. Okay. and there were there were several companies out there making these these kinds of instruments and uh, and you so so you're there you you've started in um, 
what was the, the the level of CO2 in the atmosphere at the start of these measurements? Then this is a, a brand new measurement. It was it was around three hundred and fifteen parts per million. Yeah. Okay, so post-war, so there's there's been a uh, an increase um, uh, already from the pre-industrial. Well, he CO2, didn't know that so, because yeah. there were no prior measurements. So this was, I mean, you could you could you could look at calendars data and say there might have been, but it was not very clear. It was not as clear. So so a, a really a careful process of uh, of making absolutely sure that everything was right. Is that right? I understand that he was quite a, a careful scientist. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the hard part wasn't this infrared analyzer. The hard part was calibration. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is you can put instrument, you can put air in this instrument and you can get a number out. But how do you know it's the right number? You don't. You have to put in something you know. You have to put a known in and get the number out. And of course, it'll be a little bit wrong, but you know how much it's wrong, and so you can correct for it. Yeah. And then you compare that known to an air sample that's similar in concentration. And so he needed a way to come up with gas that he could use. This is like air from a compressed gas cylinder, like a scuba tank or something. He needed to come up with air like that that he knew the CO2 concentration of. So prior to to, to, to this installation in, in Mauna Loa, he'd already been developing a method for calibrating CO2 uh, involving a technique called manometry. And it's quite simple. You simply take air. First of all, you freeze dry it to get rid of the water vapor. So it's dry air. The next thing that readily condenses from air after you've taken the water out is the CO2. And you can condense the CO2 out with liquid nitrogen, which was then available as a commercial product that hadn't been decades earlier. So he would simply freeze the CO2 out of the air, capture it separately, and measure the pressure, volume, and temperature of the original and then the, and the extracted CO2. And that gave the number of moles of each, if people know the gas law, <laughs> PV equals NRT. Some people may remember that. And he was simply applying the gas law or a slightly more refined version that took into account something you call virial coefficients um, to, to calculate the number of moles. And then by looking at the ratio, you get the number of moles of CO2 per moles of air. That's the mole fraction. And that's what we express in parts per million. So he, he calibrated the air from these tanks, used these tanks to calibrate the analyzer, and therefore we get a very accurate number with an instrument that was precise, but not by itself accurate. Okay, great. So, but, but we didn't have an idea of, 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 um, of the CO2 concentration, you know, before then. So how, how, are we get, how do we know that, that, that that's changed, um, that CO2 concentration has, had changed in the, in the late 1950s since the pre-industrial? Well, we didn't know it then, and we really didn't know that very well until the 1980s when a lot of hard work went into trying to figure out how to get CO2 measured in ancient air trapped in ice cores. And there were groups in France and groups in Switzerland that really did the legwork on this. And it was about a 10-year process of trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work. Um, but by the, the mid-1980s, there was convincing evidence that the CO2 had been lower and just how much lower. It had been about 280 or 285 parts per million pre-industrially for actually quite a long, um, for yeah. many many centuries, really, so even, even millennia before that. suspected this, but I had to have that confirmed that there had been this, this rise already in. Um, I think actually the numbers came back a little lower than they expected. Okay. The, 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 the best guess before then was about 290. And so they came up with a lower number. And that, that actually indicated that CO2 had come from something else besides fossil fuel burning in the early period. Well, this leads nicely onto my next question, which yeah. was, you know, um, so it st started in the late 50s and started to see um, uh, this year-on-year -year increase, you know, pretty solid increase every year uh, of CO2 in the atmosphere. And um, 
I guess the question that people would want to know at that point is, is where's it come from? And, and how do you know that that's come from fossil fuels? You know, what are the techniques that people, people are using uh, to understand that that's actually coming from fossil fuel burning? Right. And did they know that at that point? Well, you know, the history of this is a little different. It was it was not trying to prove the rise was coming from fossil fuel. It was proving it was it was establishing that it was rising on the expectation that it should be rising because yeah. of fossil fuel burning. <laughs> and and of course what 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 he learned was that the rate of rise was slower than you expect from fossil fuel burning. Okay. And 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 an important point here is we know how big the atmosphere is. Yeah. Right. We know the sur- <laughs> we know the surface area of the Earth. We know the barometric pressure at the surface, and that the barometric pressure is basically just the weight of air above you. So you multiply it by the area by the weight, you get the total number of kilograms of the atmosphere. You can turn that into moles, so you know the total number of moles in the air. You also similarly know how much how many tons of coal and how many barrels of oil and so forth were burning. So you can add that up and you can do a simple calculation as to how much carbon dioxide will be rising from that process alone. And what my father saw was smaller than that. It was significant. It was noticeable. It was really you know, compelling increase, but it was less. And so the, the, the question immediately turned not to, is this caused by fossil fuel burning? That wasn't the question on the table. The question on the table was, where is the rest going? <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> right. So, yeah. so now there there are other ways to sh- to show that the CO two is coming from fossil fuel burning. You can look at the what I, I I've also measured changes in oxygen, and you can see that decreasing. That's an indication of fossil fuel burning. You can you can look at the isotopes, and it's consistent with fossil fuel burning. But it's important to realize that we don't even need that because we know how much we're adding. We know we're flooding the atmosphere with extra carbon dioxide, and it has to be going somewhere, and only part of it's ending up in the air. So so this is a good, a good point to introduce the idea of a, of a carbon sink i guess really um could you talk about carbon sinks and the, and the various carbon sinks that there are? yeah right so so where is this co2 that's not in the air well there's really two main places it could be one is in the ocean remember i mentioned that that was a, a suspicion in the early days that the oceans would take it all up and and it was clear that the oceans did have a big capacity for absorbing carbon dioxide because the oceans have a lot of carbon in them now as dissolved carbonate and bicarbonate um, and it's potential for that to increase as you add CO2 to the air, and then it will go into the ocean and, and dissolve there. Um, so that was a possibility. Uh, and what Ravel and Susan shown uh, to show that it wasn't a massive sink was just to look at the rates at which that was likely to happen, showing that it, it wasn't going to be fast enough to take it all up. So the oceans have a capacity, but it, but it acts slowly. It takes a long time for the oceans to, to really realize its capacity. Yes. Um, and the other possibility is that it's being taken up by land plants. Um, so, right. so, 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 so both of those were uh, potential sinks. And in the early days, it wasn't clear what the split was between the two. Okay. So I, I saw a, a lovely video on YouTube the other day when... Uh, um, uh, Feynman, Richard Feynman's talking about plants, uh, and, yeah. and people think that they come. You know, he says people think they come from the ground, right? They, they they come up out of the ground and they're built out of the ground, but actually they're they're built from the air. They built, you know, they draw down carbon from the air and they're built from air. And I think that's a lovely image of a, how do you get carbon out of the atmosphere? Oh, you you put it in plants and then you put it in soils as well, uh, as well as the ocean. So it, it's a it's a nice idea to people don't generally think about the carbon cycle. Well, that's a really key point. Is that the when we add carbon from fossil fuel burning to the atmosphere and it goes somewhere else, the carbon is not disappearing. Yeah. It's still there in a different form as carbon. So plants take up CO2, but to the extent there's less CO2 in the air, there has to be more carbon in the plant. 
or in some tissue left over from the plant, like a trunk on the ground. Okay. So okay. the and mass of carbon is conserved in this whole business. And, and that's where some of these accounting sort of yeah. methods, that's how it, yeah. we, we know it's going, uh, it's coming out of the ground and going into the air. And, and right. therefore we know it should go into the oceans and to the land surface. And you're absolutely right. I mean, trees grow by taking CO2 out of the air and water out of the ground. And, but, as, but, as well as the minerals little, as well. A little, but, little bit of both. But uh, um, it's, not like, it's not like they're sucking minerals out of the soil and creating this mineral structure. No, it's not created from minerals. It's created from the atmospheric CO2 mostly. So, uh, so we're, we're moving on. I guess we can still see the CO two rising through time, um, and uh, w the the land is a sink. So, how much uh, uh, carbon is the land taking up in comparison with the ocean um, th uh, since the second half of the twentieth century? What's what are the kind of fractions that are going? Well, I mean, in rough terms, they're about equal, and they add up to about half of the total. So, if you want a very crude. Uh, perspective on it. About half of the CO2 we emitted is uh, not in the atmosphere and half of that or a quarter of the total is in the ocean and another quarter is in the land. Okay, that, so that's, 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 about, good, yeah. that's about the perspective. So they're all, they're all, they're all important here as, as components. So, so you can think of, I guess you can think of the land and the ocean both as uh, kind of mitigating the impacts of climate change in terms of um, there would be more carbon in the atmosphere, would have stayed in the atmosphere and the, the planet would be warmer had not the land and the ocean being taken up. Uh, That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean the rise would be almost twice what we've seen. So, uh, so is there a, a is there a danger? Are there any risks that those uh, carbon sinks, the drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere uh, into the land surface, into the ocean, might might change with time? Is that is that could they uh, take up more uh, carbon to the to the land and to the ocean, or might they take up less under under some sort of global warming scenario? Yeah, that's that's certainly possible, and and it's one reason to keep track of the system to make sure there are no surprises. But I, I would say that um, in in the decades that I've been looking at it, it's been almost remarkably predictable, and that the insights into how these sinks were behaving or could behave decades ago would have forecasted pretty well where we are today based on knowing fossil fuel burning. Now, whether that continues isn't, isn't at all clear, but, um, and particularly the, the land uptake remains mysterious. Just where is it? Just why did it get taken up? Is that going to continue? Uh, or are there other reservoirs of carbon on the land now? There is quite a lot of carbon in certain soils, for example. Um, could that be released by warming? So there's concerns about that. I think it's also possible that we could be growing trees in bigger ways. And I mean, we do see evidence of increased photosynthesis on the planet. Um, so there's also potential for some uh, growth in the in the sinks in the future. So uh, and that's what we've seen so far. So that the, so the predictable part has been that the, yeah. the, 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 the sinks have continued to grow. Um, and there's a lot of concerned that that's not going to continue, but we don't know. Yeah. So it's a, a, a really quite a large uncertainty by the sounds of it. So you've got uh, carbon stored uh, in the soils near uh, near the pole, um, near the North Pole. Is that right? Huge, yeah. huge amounts of uh, carbon locked away. Right. Carbon right. in forests, right. carbon in, uh, where else in the land surface, in peat. Um, and I right. guess all of these are, are, are possibly vulnerable to, to climate change, to fire. Yeah, some more than area. others. I yeah. mean, yeah, like the tropical forest may be vulnerable and these, these northern soils appear vulnerable. Um, but, you know, surprisingly, the systems are gaining carbon. Yes. So, so, that's, so, so that's the fact is that most of these systems are gaining carbon, not losing it.
So, so uh, although could there be ways to enhance, uh, you know, and sort of mitigate further some of these climate change impacts we might see? Could you? Uh, what could we do to enhance those carbon sinks? I guess. Is, is that well, I know, we're you getting know, into the realms of ge geoengineering? Well, I don't know. A, I mean, a topic here that I don't know much about is this uh, rewilding and growing forests in places that they used to be, but they haven't been for thousands of years. So you can, that that's in a way, you know, it's a, it be a commercial enterprise, but would also help in a small way with the carbon problem. But I, you know, one, one thing I would emphasize is that, yes, there's a lot of uncertainties in these sinks, but the big uncertainty going forward is what we do with fossil fuel burning, okay. because that's the big term there that's driving everything and if, if and until we turn a major corner on fossil fuel burning that's going to continue to overwhelm all the other aspects of what might go on okay so the the, the fossil fuel release is the dominant term in, in our yeah. future and yeah your future warming yeah i think we're fooling ourselves if we think we can grow our way out of this problem and continue on business as usual with fossil fuel we have to cut fossil fuel burning as a major step to get this under control so, so I guess that, that brings me to. I was interested in, in your history. So, you, you took after, uh, you took over the the, um, the monitoring of the curve uh, in uh, in the two thousands when you, when your father sadly passed away. But I, I was I was really intrigued as to your um, early history, and mm -hmm. I, I realized I was born in nineteen seventy nine. Mm -hmm. So the Charney report was released in nineteen seventy nine. So, so since I've been born, yeah. you know, it's been public, really public knowledge that CO two causes. Uh, warming on the planet and that climate change is dangerous. That was, you know, a, a landmark report. Um, but I thought, but um, am I right in understanding your father started taking these measurements um, uh, just as you were born or maybe just before you were born? A little after. A little after, okay. But, but almost but almost to the point where, you know, the curve has wiggles on it, right? Yeah, okay. And the first wiggle, the first peak is in is in the May of 1958, when I was one years old. Oh, what? So my oh, age really? is counted by the number of peaks. So you can count, you can count <laughs> that's, that's, that's lovely. That's just lovely. I was, so it, and it I, I can tell you, I get older and that curve keeps sadly it keeps just, going up. It just keeps going up. So, so I, you know, I, I've forgotten what, what my number is, but we've all got a number at which, yeah. you know, the, the, the CO2 concentration at which we were born. And where are we now? Are we at... Uh, we passed 400, is that right? Recently, we, so you said well, we started Well, it was, it was like four, well, it depends exactly where, you know, if you want to get down to fine details, the, the, it's going up a little bit faster in the north and the south. So you get a, a slightly different timing of crossing thresholds, depending on which hemisphere you're where at. Where you but, are. Oh, well, <clears> actually, that, that reminds me, I wanted to talk about the shape of this curve. So we've yeah. got a, a curve that goes up year on year, um, but it's got a kind of distinctive sawtooth pattern. Um, uh, and I wanted to just briefly mention that and, and, and ask why this curve, which you'd think is, you know, a well-mixed gas in the atmosphere, CO2, is, we, we think of as a well-mixed gas. Why would that have, you know, seasonal changes? What are those, what are driving those seasonal changes in, in the curve as you go up those peaks that you were talking about as, as you go up through time? Right. Well, that was, you know, one of the most uh, remarkable discoveries in the first year or so of the model of measurements is my father thought he had a broken instrument because it kept <laughs> giving slightly different readings at different times of year. Uh, and there were also power outages, so there were hiatuses in the data stream, and it would come back on at a different level. And, you know, he was he was of the view that there should be almost a constant background, and now he was seeing the background drift around. So he was quite concerned he had a, had a problem, an analytical problem on his hand. But, but about one year into it or so, as it repeated itself the second year, he realized, oh, this is a seasonal cycle. And I, I'm sure as soon as he saw that, he realized, oh, my God, this is, why, why didn't we think of this? Because, of course, plants don't grow equally all year. They grow in the summertime in the northern hemisphere, and Mauna Loa is in the northern hemisphere, and so it's exposed to the air atmosphere that's not long 
previously had trees taking CO2 out of it. So yeah, the CO2 concentration goes down through the summer months, and then it comes back up in the other months because the ecosystems that have the trees are also giving CO2 off at the other times of year. Um, and the, the, reason, the reason you see that cycle, uh, despite the mixing of the atmosphere, is that the atmosphere isn't perfectly mixed. It does mix quite rapidly. There's about a one-year delay between the southern hemisphere, but that's long enough that these northern hemisphere signals stay in the northern hemisphere for a few months. That's all it takes to build up the cycle. Okay, so you can you can see that distinct shape, and you can see the you can see the plants you know drawing down, like really pulling down the CO2 out of the atmosphere as they as they grow in the in the summer months. That's, yeah, it's just it's a planetary metabolism. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's planetary, like a heartbeat. Like it's a, planetary metabolism. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I guess I'd, I'd come back to what I was saying before. I was I was born at the, at the point of the China, China report, but you must have you must have been one of the f- first families to see this uh, this this CO two concentration going up, and and perhaps to realize the um, to realize the, the consequences, what the consequences might be. Is that fair to say, or, or what are your early memories of? Uh, yeah. Okay. Of so that yeah. It's, it, 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 a couple points. One is that you know when my father was making these measurements at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, there was a lot of exciting science going on. <laughs> I mean, plate tectonics, where they're figuring out continental drift. There, yeah. were, there were all these exciting new areas of science. And, and my father was just doing one little thing among many. And uh, in fact, he was faulted for not being more creative. Having shown that CO2 rise has rising, he should have moved on to some other major problem. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I understand why he did what he did. Why did he keep it going? Because he, looking at this as a global, globally important phenomenon, he couldn't imagine anything more important, more important. he personally yeah. could do than to keep it going. Because if he didn't do it, the record would end, and that would be of major consequences. So. Um, in that sense, he was among the very first science to, scientists to really dedicate himself to this this problem of global change. Um, I would say, you know, a, a partner with, with him in, the, in those very early days was Bert Bolin, who who, who found, uh, later uh, founded or at least helped initiate the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they, they worked together on several papers in the early 1960s. And Bert Bolin was pretty much in there, too, with my father as the first two who were, who were really committing their, their, their careers to this problem. Uh, and and they and they they worked together for a while, so there was there was cross fertilization. Okay, but, um, but they understood. So they really understood the implications of what they were measuring, and, just, and, and, and they realized this was. And it, it wasn't lost on others too. I mean, some of these early data were figured in reports that were uh, shown to the, I think, President Johnson and the White House. Um, there were there were there were sort of high level government reports. Roger Avell, I mentioned him, the director of Scripps. He was very influential, and he he had basically launched this measurement program. And these were some of the fruits of the program, indicating that there was a significant issue. So it was being talked up. Up. Already, it wasn't widely known in the public, but there were popular accounts of this already in the in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, and and did uh, did that, um, that that recognition of the importance did that influence your decision to to go into into the geosciences? How did you decide to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I um, looked at first first question is you know what kind of uh, career is right for you, and I I. 
I did like the idea of doing science. It wasn't clear to me in high school until I was in college that it was something that I was had enough natural talent at to be worth pursuing. Uh, but at the point I realized, yes, I, <clears throat> I probably have a career that I could pull off in science. What do I want to do? I wasn't at all convinced I wanted to do what my father was doing. And I was looking at other areas of physics in particular that were interesting at the time. There was a lot of interest in in chaos theory and uh, uh, the sort of nonlinear mathematics. And I was elapsed nicely with yeah. what we do. We talked <laughs> yeah, about it in the, yeah, podcast, no, the podcast, I, actually. I, I, I could have easily gone off in that direction at that time. Um, so no, I remember, so it wasn't until I was in graduate. So I really put off the decision of what to do career-wise until I was in graduate school. And I, I, I chose a school, Harvard University, that happened to have a program where a lot of things were going on on the same floor. So I could, I could procrastinate. <laughs> what, what, what interesting things people were up to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was some point early in the, my time there where I was thinking about, you know, what do I want to work on? And I, I felt like, okay, well, I could... I could work out a problem in fundamental physics or something like this, but it, and that could be important, but I felt like there was a greater urgency and a greater connection with this, that time in working on a problem closer to what my father had done, working on global change, because the, you, there was a finite window to study the planet before it was a different planet. Yeah, yeah. And so there was an urgency to move in and, and study that space because it was going to disappear. Yeah. And that wasn't the a discovery in physics could be discovered 20, 30 years later, but this changing planet, it was, it was, it was going to be a different place. So, so that's so yeah, the measurements now. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I felt that pull. Okay, that's amazing. And and you you, you mentioned you um, you moved into oxygen. Is that right? You sort of measuring oxygen as, as another sort of fundamental. Yeah. So that's uh, so, so as I said, I felt that pull, but I was also increasingly engaged in conversations with my father about his, his own work. As I as I sort of my own toolbox grew and my conceptual toolbox, he was sometimes using me to solve problems. <laughs> he was farming out math problems on me. <laughs> that sounds great training. <laughs> because he, he always felt a little frustrated in math, and, and I, I had better training than he did at that point. So I remember one point, he, 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 was, he was had a problem with something called Laplace transforms, and he couldn't figure out how to solve it, so he gave it to me. And I... I figured it was Sounds figured good. out doing do, do some kind of expansion and uh, s to the one half. Anyway, so <laughs> he, he he'd miss that. But but so I was talking to him about his work, and he explained the uh, the sort of the state of the science of the day. That would have been the sort of late 1979 or so. And he explained that one of the things that had been thought that would be important that just hadn't been done yet was to measure oxygen changes. So the idea came from him. He didn't, he wasn't telling me to do that. He didn't think I was necessarily even going to be in the same field or at least close, but I, I filed that thought yeah, away. It as important, I fought, it? filed that away and I kept kind of, you know, letting it percolate in my mind saying, oh, but there's a way to do that. And I, around the same time, I got interested in, in precision measurements for their own sake. Uh, independently, okay. and so this kind of connected those two strands. That's fantastic. Okay, and and um, and would you say now that it's of crucial importance to uh, to, to to keep this record going? Um, you know, where does the funding come from to to continue uh, these measurements, and what do we need to measure next? What's you know what what's equally important, or could be equally important in the future? And how would you expand the network? I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, these measurements are important to keep going. It's not trivial to do that. I mean, the, the, the recognition of their importance makes it seemingly easy to keep it funding, but there are there are challenges that we face uh, continuing on that. Um, you know, a lot of my colleagues, and I respect them, uh, have felt the pull of of moving into a space that involves more interaction with policy and how do you how do you actually show that we're <clears throat> reducing fossil fuels and and serving advisory roles for emissions reductions and so forth and and that's something that's needed at the same time we still need people to make the measurements and so so the yeah. measurements are no even even though the field has widened in terms of the number of things that you need done it's still important to keep these measurements going as an activity. So I've I've stayed true to that in, in the same way my father did. I th I think you know I've been aware of of, of this iconic curve. It's, it's yeah. clearly it's an amazing piece of communication. You know it's understandable um, to the vast majority of the public. They can see what's going on. Um, I think it would be a disaster if if if, uh, if if it wasn't carried on. Um, I noticed in the Guardian newspaper the other day that there's it's you know the the, the PPM your measurements are uh, included in the, in the Guardian weather forecast right. uh, as as a, <coughs> I, I think particularly as a climate change uh, communication device. And and Richard, I know I know you um, talking about you know forecast and forecast. <coughs> I know you've written a paper, and I think Ralph, you're on this paper as well. Yeah. Uh, um, um, forecasting what the the uh, the the CO two level for the next uh, is it the next year will will be could, could you explain how that works and and you know where you get the information from for that forecast yeah so so we've talked about sort of two aspects of uh, of the Keeling curve one is the seasonal cycle the other is the ongoing rise year by year but the third bit is that the year by year rise actually speeds up and slows down every year um, in response to changes in climate year by year uh, and the strongest impact on that is the El Nino phenomenon uh, so you get a warmer warmer conditions in the equatorial east pacific ocean which affect the weather all around the world particularly in the tropics and what happens is when you get an El Nino event um, the tropical land areas uh, tend to get warmer and drier so their action as a carbon sink is weakened so you get a faster rise in CO2. The oceans also play a, a role in this as well, but it's less strong than the, the, the land. So you get a faster CO2 rise temporarily in an El Nino year. Then when you have the opposite, the La Nina, you get a slower CO2 rise. And Ralph uh, himself and others, including our, our colleagues here at the Met Office, Chris Jones and Peter Cox now at Exeter University, have worked on this as well. Several people have looked at the connections and the correlation is incredibly strong. Um, and when... In 2015, a large El Nino event was starting to emerge and our seasonal forecasting colleagues here at the Met Office were predicting and other groups were predicting this huge El Nino that was coming. And we we knew that the last time there'd been a very large El Nino in 1997-98, there'd been a, a very rapid rise in CO2. There'd been huge fires in Indonesia, but also the weakening of the tropical land carbon sinks as well. And it just so happened that around that time, the CO2 concentrations were approaching this sort of symbolic threshold of 400 parts 400 per million. Part, yeah, okay. they, the seasonal cycle had been going up and down, up and down through the 400 ppm threshold. Oh, so it goes, it goes up and down quite a lot, yeah. doesn't it? It's going up and down by a few ppm a year. Yes, is that right? it does. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Ralph wrote a little blog post, uh, so wondering whether that year, 2015, would see the be the last time we'd see any measurements below 400 parts per million in September 2015, um, and I sort of 
thought, oh, actually, we can actually make a formal prediction of this because I knew there's this strong correlation statistically. I knew we had the forecasting capability in the Met Office to predict sea surface temperatures. So we can relate statistically the sea surface temperatures in the Pacific to the CO2 rise. So I talked to seasonal forecasting colleagues and with carbon cycle colleagues in our team here, we joined the things together uh, made this formal prediction. Ralph joined the paper as well. Uh, we predicted that we were to see a, the second largest, or no, the the largest annual rise in CO two that for the coming year, uh, and that we would indeed stay above four hundred ppm all year round in twenty sixteen. We published that in Nature Climate Change, and we we got it almost embarrassingly accurately right. <laughs> Uh, so and it, is, it is amazing how predictable this is, actually. It really is. And it's just the sea surface temperatures. And, yes, you know. yes. And it's not just in the big events of El Nino and La Nina. Even smaller uh, changes from year to year, you, you can still see the link between the slight warming and the slight acceleration in CO2 and vice versa. So it's incredibly predictable. And is that going to tell us something about how those uh, land surface sinks, particularly, I guess, would... would um you know, change in the future with with warming. So they're they're reacting to a, a year on year warming or cooling, aren't they? But is is that going to give us some information at, um, about the longer term warming and how they might respond to a longer term? It, warming? W- it will certainly help. Uh, it's very difficult to predict the exact or regional patterns uh, of uh, of climate change in response to ongoing long term warming. But it's quite possible we could see. Uh, drier uh, conditions and certainly hotter conditions across much of the uh, tropics so if if that were to happen then we would see a weakening of the carbon sinks but as ralph was saying earlier there's we we don't know either way for sure but if we can show that yes we can understand these mechanisms on the interannual time scale it helps us get a better picture for how things might change in, in in the longer term fantastic so um so i guess um Last, I could ask, uh, what are our plans for the future, Professor Keeling? Uh, are, are you working with the Met Office? Uh, are you here visiting? What, what are you up to? And I understand you're working with Richard Moore. Um, what's next for you? Well, we've had a remote relationship, fruitful, but it's really nice to meet in person and connect. And so it was a little bit of a meet and greet. And, Is uh, your first time here? Uh, not the first time in Exeter, but the first time in the UK Met Office. Okay, so, okay. yeah. Um, so yeah, we're we're brainstorming about uh, opportunities for furthering these same kind of studies. Um, you know, my own uh, research interests have moved into, uh, as I mentioned, I'm measuring oxygen changes, uh, and that gives us a handle on other aspects of how carbon dioxide is changing. I should say that oxygen is decreasing in the atmosphere, which most people will think, oh my God, well, I haven't heard about this one. And, <laughs> that does sound yeah, rather alarming. <laughs> and and uh, I have to uh, sort of give, give, give people a little assurance there that the, these changes in oxygen that we measure are tiny. And so they're diagnostic, but they're not environmentally threatening at this point. And as, as far as we can tell, we'll, we'll run out of fossil fuels long before we've made much of a dent in oxygen. So okay, it's it, it decreasing really in proportion to how much fossil fuel we're burning. And at some point, we run out of fossil fuels. And we'll, at that point, there'll still be a lot of oxygen less, left in the air. So I, I, Hopefully, I, we won't get to that point of running yeah, out of fossil yeah, fuels. Yeah, yeah. If we stop before then, that would be useful. I'm that, that's going to be a problem for many centuries in the future of, minor, of, much, of much more minor significance compared to the CO2 released from it. So I'm, I'm working on that. There's what, what, a sort of piece of my research is to, is to look at components of the atmosphere that are changing slowly uh, that can give us diagnostic information. And all the major components of air are changing in relative abundance, tiny amounts. And so each one of those has its own story. And oxygen had something to contribute. We're also measuring argon. People may 
think about what air is made out of, nitrogen, oxygen, argon. So we're measuring argon concentrations. Um, we can see uh, that, that argon changes because if, if the ocean warms, they release argon. So you can get a measure of ocean warming out of the argon concentration. Oh, so you can, you can, yeah, this is so, a great thing. So we can, can actually track, we can track global ocean heat content from the air. That's okay. Okay, so these that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> it's not. It, it's extremely difficult, and there's some. Com, 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 I'm not. We're not ready to go prime time with that by any means. Uh, but it's a work in progress. But it's coming. Well, yeah. we will look forward. I'll read, look forward yeah. to reading that paper, and I'm sure people will look forward to hearing about it. But yeah. uh, I'd just like to say thanks. Thanks very much for uh, for coming and talking to us on Mostly Weather, and uh, and we hope to see you again in the UK soon. Okay. And. Uh, thanks very much for listening to the Mostly Weather podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you.